You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Zuman, Matthew the Navigator, the Pirate Nopales, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I've been watching a lot of westerns lately. I suspect I'm not alone in that. With Red Dead Redemption coming out and the Coen brothers releasing The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I think the mythology of the Old West has been popping up in a lot of people's purview lately. I've always sort of liked westerns, especially as a kid, but not really. I watched a few of them, but... Most were boring and slow. When I was pretending to be a film snob in my early twenties, I watched The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, along with most of Clint Eastwood's catalog, and I enjoyed them, but I enjoyed them mostly for the gunfights. I don't think I really understood them, not until recently, and I'm only beginning to now. In part, I think my renewed interest in the Western comes from getting older. You know, as a kid, I really liked Young Guns. As a teenager, I liked Tombstone. But neither of those are really westerns. They take place in the Old West. They have cowboys, they have gunfights, and they have saloons. But they're westerns in the same way that Star Wars is a sci-fi movie, or that Alien is a sci-fi movie. Star Wars is really a fantasy, just set in space. And Alien is really a horror movie, set in space. The westerns I liked growing up were action movies set in the Old West. They looked like westerns, they had all the trappings of a western, but their themes and their pacing were those of action movies, not of westerns. Now that I could probably be called an adult, now that I'm getting old enough to see the culture shifting from that in which I grew up, I'm really starting to see the allure of the western. The sociologist Will Wright tells us in his book Six Guns and Society that the Western has themes and structure that define the genre. The structure goes something like this. The main character, who's usually a man and usually a little older, arrives out from the wild into the civilized world. You can picture that scene in almost every Western in history. The scene in which our hero rides into town to have a look around. He's dusty and squinting and clearly out of his element. But then he goes on to enjoy the fruits of the civilized world. Sometimes it will be a kindly homesteader offering him a meal and maybe a bed. Sometimes he'll go to the saloon to partake in whiskey and women. 
Usually he'll have a bath or a shave, and maybe he'll go shopping. Sometimes he'll end that all with a nice cigar. And from all that evidence, civilization looks great. But then the hero sees the darker side. He'll see brutality and carelessness and all the negative things that the civilized world brings with it. Usually it's a landlord that's to blame. He'll be someone putting up fences and taking people's land. Sometimes the landlord will be actively brutalizing a family with his hired guns. Other times he might be more passive, maybe limiting the people's access to water. So our hero, so recently come in from the wilderness, has to do what he does best. Kill people. He shoots all the bad guys. And in the older westerns, the bad guys are usually vaguely Mexican-looking, or maybe Indians, or at least a little bit swarthy. But when all the bad guys are dead, the hero, his job done, rides off into the sunset, back to the wilderness, after having learned that society just doesn't have room for men like him. And the primary conflict in those older, very structured westerns is usually between a strong, clean, virtuous old world and the dirty, weak vices of the new world to come. The best westerns usually take place around the turn of the century, when you've got trains and telegraphs and maybe moving pictures and the whole industrial revolution encroaching on the... You know, independent, hard-scrabble, plucky spirit of the Old West. And that's the theme. A virtuous old world being encroached upon by a villainous new world, by the sins of progress. I mean, think about the stereotypical image of someone watching a Western. It's Grandpa, right? He's sitting in his Lazy Boy, maybe with a beer cracked open, watching John Wayne crack wise and kill Indians. It's about a time when men were men and defended what was theirs. The good old days before bureaucracy started getting in the way, when hard work was what mattered, and these kids today don't know the meaning of a good day's work. They're all about pining for simpler times, now that the world seems to have grown very complicated. And to be fair, I'm not terribly fond of those older westerns. And I hate John Wayne movies. What I like, well... They're called post-westerns. Most of Clint Eastwood's westerns fall into the post-western category, especially his later works. The best of these, I think unanimously, is Unforgiven, but I think that movies like Pale Rider and High Plains Drifter both fall into that category as well. Most of these westerns came out in the 70s, when the traditional western was in decline and the studio system in Hollywood had given way to the auteur. I think it's probable that Cormac McCarthy's books had a lot to do with the rise of the post-Western. They might even be given credit for giving birth to the post-Western genre. I'm not certain my timeline might be off there, but most of McCarthy's books are still good examples of the post-Western. In much the same way that Star Wars looks like a sci-fi movie, post-Westerns look a lot like Westerns, typically. Their structure is often very much the same. The protagonist comes in from the wild, runs into conflict with civilization, kills a bunch of people to resolve it, and rides back into the wild. So at face value, these are westerns, but then you find that the themes are different in a number of key ways. 
The biggest and most obvious difference between the Western and the post-Western is the antagonist, and who the antagonist usually is. It might still be a land baron, but it's equally likely to be the sheriff. And there were absolutely bad sheriffs in those older traditional Westerns, but they were always corrupt. They were subverting the rightful system. In the post-Western, the sheriff can still be the bad guy while acting entirely within the law and what might be seen as proper morality. Take, for example, a non-Western sheriff here, the Sheriff of Nottingham. I know it's not the same kind of sheriff, but work with me. Nottingham is a bad guy because he and Prince John are working together to undermine the king and to subvert the God-given rightful order of things. That's what makes him a bad guy. That's why it's right for Robin Hood to do what he does. But take the sheriff in Unforgiven. He doesn't break the law. He doesn't take bribes. He isn't out trying to claim more power than he should. And in fact, he actively works at very little else than to enforce the laws of his town. That should be a good guy, but the sheriff in Unforgiven does so in the most unfeeling and brutal fashion imaginable. He orders a couple of cowboys that brutally attacked a prostitute to be whipped in the town square. But then, when their pimp pipes up to complain about lost income, the sheriff instead orders the cowboys to pay him a bunch of horses. He no longer gets a beating, but now they have a hefty fine. And in the eyes of the viewer, that's not right. No justice has been served. But in the eyes of the law, justice has been seen to. Later, that same sheriff catches someone illegally carrying a pistol in town and he sees that that pistol is taken from him, but he does so through intimidation and a terrible beating. And all the while, this sheriff feels, and in some ways kind of actually is, in the right. He's on the right side of the law, at least, and in many ways, morality. So the major difference, so far, in Unforgiven, is that the antagonist is somebody who never would have served as an antagonist in a more traditional western. But then, there's the protagonist, the man played by Clint Eastwood. His name is literally Money, and he's doing the killing of those two cowboys, not for righteousness, but for money. And when he finally gets down to business by, you know, doing what heroes in cowboy movies do, that is, killing people to solve his problems, you find out that he's not the hero. In fact, I'm fairly certain he's the bad guy in that movie, when he does get down to business, Clint Eastwood is shrouded in darkness. You see him take a drink at the bar, and his eyes are black like a shark's eyes. He's drunk at this point in the movie, he's fallen off the wagon, and he's doing what he's doing, not for money, and certainly not for righteousness, but for revenge. And then, at the very end of the movie, we see his face framed by the American flag, in most westerns, this would be a hero shot. This would be the noble end to a job well done, but not here. He's drunk, and he's full of rage and terror and sorrow and despair. He's not the hero right then. He's terrifying. And then when the hero rides back into the wilderness, he doesn't ride into the sunset. He rides into the unadulterated black of a dark and stormy night. This is episode 99, Inevitability. Now what does all of this have to do with pirates, you are likely thinking right about now? Allow me to explain. When we meet Clint Eastwood's character in Unforgiven, he's reformed. 
He was a gang member and a thief and a killer, but due to his dearly departed wife and children, he's sticking to the straight and narrow. He's running a hog farm and raising his children. Our hero today, the last pirate of the Barbary Pirates with which we will be spending any significant time, similarly came from a violent past. He was a privateer, a mercenary, and then, finally, a pirate. They called him the Devil Captain, Simon Danziker. But he left all of that behind. He went to France to live in lawful peace with his wife and son in Marseille. And much like Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven, he would have preferred to keep it that way. But he wasn't allowed to. When the hero in a post-Western comes into conflict with the villain, the villain is almost always an authority figure, who is somehow using that authority to harm others around him. Now that probably has to do with a shifting in American cultural norms. The traditional Western typically comes from the World War II or Cold War era, where Americans were always the good guys and the hero out to save the day. But the post-Westerns typically come from the late 60s and 70s, from a time in which Americans had on the whole lost a lot of faith in their governing structures. The authority figures that they once would have trusted with almost anything were now to be looked upon with suspicion. And thus the villain in these post-Westerns shifted. But even then, even once he comes into conflict with the villain in a post-Western, the hero doesn't act. Because he's never a hero. I mean, look at Eastwood and Unforgiven. Or you can look at Tommy Lee Jones and No Country for Old Men. Or you can even look at Wolverine in the movie Logan. As Eastwood says in Unforgiven, Just because we're going on this killing, that don't mean I'm going to go back to being the way I was. I just need the money. Get a new start for them youngsters. Yeah. I'm just a fella now. I ain't no different than anyone else. No more. The protagonists in these movies aren't motivated by heroism or righteousness or, you know, the desire to help people. They're motivated by selfish desires or revenge or oftentimes just a lack of any other option. And usually all three, woven together somehow. You know, Eastwood in Unforgiven was killing for money. That's selfish, but it was to provide for his children who were one bad winter away from starvation, a lack of options. And then his partner is killed, and Eastwood just kills everybody. That's revenge. You know, that's not noble. That's not really even admirable. At best, the protagonist in a post-Western is an anti-hero. So what does this have to do with Danziker? Well, he was out of his old life. His violent past was behind him for good now, or so he thought. What he didn't know was that when his pardon was agreed to, the King of France, Henry IV, already had a plan in mind for Simon Danziker. And in truth, the plan wasn't Henry IV's, it was the brainchild of the highest-ranking soldier in all of France, a man named François de Bon, Duc de Lesdiguières. So I'm going to diverge into French history and geography for just a second. Les de Guerre was the Grand Constable of France. That's the highest rank in the French military, after the king. 
He was a hero of the French Wars of Religion, most notably the final war between the Protestant King Henry IV and his Italian in-laws and their Roman Catholic allies. Les de Guerre won a number of key battles and captured the Catholic South in the name of the king, hence why he was raised to Grand Constable. That put him essentially in the cabinet, or maybe the privy council of King Henry. He was basically the Secretary of War. And that made him very powerful, and to the king at least, even a little dangerous. Southern France was culturally and linguistically and even somewhat geographically removed from what you might call Parisian France. Les de Guerre, in that powerful role as constable, essentially became the governor of southern France, and should he decide to rebel against the king, it was unlikely he would lose. That might have something to do with why he was the last Grand Constable of France, and the power that he held was decentralized after his death. But after the war was over, Les Diguerre built a castle in southeastern France at the foot of the Alps that guarded the approaches from Italy. Should Italy ever think to invade, they would have to go through him. Now, his castle was near the city of Grenoble, in the province Dauphin. The primary geographic feature in Dauphin is the Rhone River, except for the Alps, of course. The Rhone carries all the river traffic from southeastern France into the Mediterranean, from places like Lake Geneva and Dijon and Lyon and Grenoble. All of that traffic traveled down the Rhone. The primary seaport in that region is Marseille, and while Marseille isn't actually on the Rhone itself, it's where all of that river traffic was going before heading out to sea, so Marseille was key to keeping that river traffic flowing. Now, Marseille wasn't in Dauphin, the seat of Les Diguerres. It was in the province to the south, Provence. Provence was Catholic. It had been a Catholic stronghold since the beginning of the French Wars of Religion, and it would continue to be so up until, and even after, the French Revolution and Napoleon. Now, there was a small independent enclave in Provence called Orange, because it was owned by the Prince of Orange-Nassau from the Netherlands, and that was Protestant. And, you know, Marseille was a big cosmopolitan city and had a lot of Protestants living there, but by and large, the people and the local gentry in Provence were compromised. They were a little too Catholic in the eyes of Henry IV and Les Diguerres. So, it was sort of implied that Les Diguerres was to keep an eye on Marseille and Provence and to make sure that there wasn't any trouble brewing. That's why he was where he was. He could watch the southeastern coast and the approaches from the Alps and guard them all should any trouble come up. And all that is to say that that's probably why he decided to bring in Zymon Danziker. It would benefit Marseille to have someone like Zymon Danziker around, and that would protect the shipping coming from not only his own lands, but the Duc de Lesdiguerre's own shipping interests. In short, it was good for all of southern France to have someone like Zymon Danziker on their side. So let's assume that Les Diguerre was behind bringing Danziker to France, and Henry IV merely signed off on that. Even then, the king's signature is important, which complicated Les Diguerre's plans. Because Henry IV was assassinated shortly after Simon Danziker came to Marseille. Now Louis XIII, his heir, took the throne, and 
Les Diguerre stayed out of politics, but he made it clear that his many, many troops were there to support the young Bourbon boy king. So that gave Danziker some leeway. Instead of being immediately thrust into the fold, Les Diguerre was busy dealing with other issues, so Danziker had time to spend with his wife and son. If he were, say, someone like Clint Eastwood, he would have had time to mend his ways and begin to build a loving relationship with his family. He would have had the opportunity to leave his life of wickedness behind and just be a fellow. But the corrupting influence of society and progress would put itself directly in his path. And the only way to resolve that conflict was, as always, to return to his violent life and kill an awful lot of people. We'll talk about the plan of Les Diguerre involving Simon Danziker in just a moment, but right now, let's turn to John Ward. If we listen to William Lithgow, the Scottish adventurer and writer who gives us our last view of John Ward, the old pirate was just an old man, tending his incubators and his chickens. But if we believe contemporary reports from other European writers who weren't there to meet Ward personally, Ward was the pirate puppet master of the Mediterranean who controlled vast armadas of Barbary corsairs from behind the scenes. If we look at the last couple of years of John Ward's life, he sailed for the Strait of Gibraltar with those other pirates out of Algiers. He headed for Salih with them. He was probably there when they took the fortress of Salih and held their first councils. And most of his ships, most of his captains, most of his pirate empire stayed there in Salih. But Ward himself, he left Salih. While Danziker and Sir Francis Verney were in Algiers, and then when Danziker was burning the fleet of Algiers, Wars was hiding out off the coast of Ireland with only a few ships. When he was spotted, and all England broke out into terror. Imagine hearing that, I'm not sure who fits here. Really nobody in our modern world fits here. But imagine walking down the street, passing a newsstand or a TV somewhere, and hearing that Adolf Hitler or Osama bin Laden was spotted at the head of 500 or so troops, Maybe, maybe in Cuba. You know, that's only 500 troops, and that's 90 miles away from the coast. That's nothing. The Coast Guard could wipe that up in an afternoon. Maybe we would have to mobilize the National Guard in the area, but if you put Adolf Hitler at their head, suddenly this is imminent destruction. That's kind of what happened with John Ward here. There were tons and tons of pirates operating off the west coast of Ireland, there had been since before Grace O'Malley, and her ancestral fleet was still out there. But those Irish freedom fighters were more than happy to welcome in John Ward for two reasons. First of all, he was willing to fight and kill the English, and the Irish liked that in a sailor. Second, he was in the company of William Saxbridge and John Easton. If you recall, Saxbridge and Easton were two pirates from England who operated all around the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. They were in the Irish Sea and the English Channel up into the North Sea. They operated off the coasts of Spain and France and Italy and Barbary. They sailed out of Salih for a time, and they harassed Portuguese slavers off the coast of Africa. They operated in Newfoundland, over in the Western Hemisphere, and they sailed to the Caribbean more than a few times. 
Those two pirates, Saxbridge and Easton, were the pirates who sailed in and saved the Corsairs in Algiers from a Spanish blockade. And here, they were introducing John Ward to those Irish freedom fighters. But it appears that what John Ward was trying to do was to smuggle himself back into England. He did still have a wife there, after all, and maybe he wanted to die in his home country. But he was spotted, and England lost their collective minds. Well, he tried a couple of times, but eventually John Ward was forced to leave his home waters. Now, we don't know where he went. There were no records of Ward for some time until word does come up that he arrived back in his hometown of Tunis, after the day changed hands and John Ward was no longer in exile. But what he did while history lost track of him is a question nobody knows the answer to. It's entirely possible that he saw the West Indies and raided the Spanish alongside Saxbridge and Easton. Those two pirates did go to the West Indies shortly after this little jaunt into the English Sea. And I like to think that John Ward was there. I like to imagine that his last true pirate expedition was in the paradise that would one day be home to so many generations of future pirates. There's something poetic and romantic and almost heartwarming about this pirate, who would be the godfather of so many other pirates, seeing the Caribbean, seeing what would become so central to the world of pirates and piracy after his death. But in the end, Ward did return to Tunis, where he would eventually be laid to rest. But as for Danziker... His days of idle rest were coming to a close. The succession of Louis XIII had gone successfully, and Les Diguerres could return to his plans for this reformed, peaceful former pirate. He wanted Simon Danziker to return to the sea, not as a privateer, certainly not as a pirate, but as sort of an official naval officer is too strong a word, maybe, maybe an advisor. The merchants in Marseille were in an uproar over the Barbary Corsairs. Simon Danziker had been the admiral of the Algerian fleet, and we know that he hesitated in attacking Dutch ships. He was Dutch, after all. But it stands to reason that he might also have refrained from attacking French shipping. Any French shipping in the Mediterranean was coming from Marseille, and his wife and son and father-in-law lived in Marseille. So Danziker probably had it in his mind that he wanted to return to that city someday, if at all possible. Attacking ships out of Marseille would certainly make that a lot more difficult. And we really only have records of Danziker attacking English, Spanish, and Italian shipping. Now, though, Sir Francis Verney was running things in Algiers, and that pirate, an Englishman, had no compunction against attacking the French. So the merchants in Marseille were hurting. They petitioned their duke for aid. Now that wasn't Les Diguerres, but Les Diguerres got the petition eventually, and he wrote the young king, Louis XIII. But Louis XIII was still just a child. Les Diguerres, on the other hand, was arguably the most powerful man in France. So he wrote a letter that was at face value asking permission from the king to undertake a mission against the Barbary Corsairs, but it was really just a notice of intent. Les Diguerres was writing the king's council, telling them what he was going to do, and even giving them a few orders. 
They had to authorize a tax which Lesdiguerre was already collecting from southern France. That was sort of illegal, but as long as the boy king signed off on it, no harm was done. Basically, Lesdiguerre ordered them to get the boy king to sign a writ which, thoughtfully, Lesdiguerre had already written up for him. Now that tax raised 24,000 crowns, and it was used to refit, equip, and supply three men of war to sail for Barbary. Those three men of war were placed under the overall command of Zyman Danziker. Sort of. He was the admiral here, but that title had about a dozen asterisks after it. The captain of the flagship of this fleet was a seasoned admiral himself, and everything, all of the orders that Zyman Danziker might make, went through him. This captain had the power of veto. He had the power to belay orders and to countermand orders given by Danziker. The presence of this captain with all of these powers made it clear that, yes, Zyman, you are in command of the fleet, but should you decide to go back to your old piratical ways, we will put you in chains, put you below deck, and I, who am a very capable admiral myself, will see the job done. Additionally, Danziker had been required to leave his entire fortune in Marseille. Now, most of it was in the care of his wife, and under the close eyes of her father, the governor. But the rest of it, a not insubstantial portion, was left as a sort of deposit with the merchants there in Marseille. They would return it when Zyman Danziker returned, or, should Zyman Danziker die, they would give it back to his family. But should Zyman Danziker turn pirate on this little venture, they would keep all of it to recoup their own losses. And then Zyman Danziker wasn't even allowed to name his own officers. He wasn't even allowed to bring on his own sailors. The crew of these three vessels were French naval regulars. Only three of Danziker's old compatriots were allowed to sail alongside him. So Danziker found himself in a less-than-perfect situation, ordered to do a job under dubious circumstances without his old friends and under pain of retribution from the king, or really from Les Diguerres. The purpose of the fleet was to sail for the Barbary coast, specifically for Algiers, and they were to do everything in their power to hinder the pirates operating there. The expectation was that Danziker would use his knowledge of the Algiers Corsairs, he had been their admiral, and his experience as a pirate to seek the pirates out in all of their hideouts and all of their hidden coves. He would know where to hide and when to hide and how to strike, and when their guard was down, Danziker would pounce out and capture or kill every pirate he found. Danziker had the ability to send agents ashore with misinformation. He would tell them where to go and what to say, and that misinformation would lead the pirates into an ambush. And potentially, he might be able to get word to men who were still there in Algiers who weren't fond of the pirate life. He might be able to get them to switch sides, to leave Algiers behind and come into the open arms of France. Danziker swore to, quote, clear out those pirates' nests within a year, end quote, and he set sail on the 1st of October, 1610. Now this was a French naval expedition. There should be extensive records of it. I'm talking about diary entries of the officers, a captain's log of daily events, and every encounter recounted in gritty detail. But there isn't. 
In fact, there's almost nothing. These were the early days of national navies. The French navy wasn't even really a royal navy. This was a personal navy outfitted by the merchants of Marseille and funded by attacks from Les Diguerres. So there aren't normal protocols in place. What's more, this is something of a clandestine mission, and neither Algiers nor Marseille knew anything about what was happening out there. Now, the French here, led by Zyman Danziker, probably did some damage. They almost certainly did hunt down corsairs in their nests and root them out. But the first verifiable record we have of this voyage is when word began to creep back to Marseille that Zyman Danziker had died. The reports were unconfirmed, but everyone assumed that it was true. Then, almost a year later, three ships sailed into Marseille Harbor. Now, they weren't familiar ships, but when their crews announced themselves, it turned out that they were carrying the very same crews, including a very much alive Simon Danziker, that had left a year ago. The ships in which they sailed were bigger, faster, and better armed than the men of war on which they'd left, from the description, it looks very much like the flagship they returned with was a Spanish galleon, which had been outfitted for piracy. The other two were, well, they might have been frigates in the Dutch design, but none of them had been stolen from the Spanish or Dutch, at least not by Danziker. They were taken from pirates, pirates who were now deceased. The mission had not been a failure. Zyman Danziker and his ships had damaged Algerian piracy and weakened the pirates there. I wonder, and the timeline does sort of match up here, I wonder if Zyman Danziker was responsible for the attack that left Sir Francis Verney without a fleet, the attack that left him severely weakened. Probably not, there are conflicting records to that effect, but there would be a certain poetry if that were the case. I mean, if this were a western... Couldn't you imagine Clint Eastwood, forced by the corrupt and vile sheriff to go hunt down his old gang, shooting down one of his old partners? He knew where their hideouts were, and he infiltrated them, only to shoot down his old partner, Yankee Frank Verney. And of course, Yankee Frank would be the charlatan, the, you know, the con man of the old gang, the sort that wore glasses and read books and kept his suit clean whenever he could. Not the toughest nor the meanest in the gang, but with a silver tongue. And now he was out there leading his own posse, even if they were only the dregs of what had once been a respectable gang. That is, of course, until Clint Danziker came in and shot him down. Maybe Zyman Eastwood? No, 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 definitely Clint Danziker. And when Zyman Danziker returned to Marseille, he was welcomed by his wife and his son and the whole community. Things were better off now for the merchants and the shipping interests in Marseille, and if they weren't still perfect, they chalked up their improvement in fortunes to the dancer. He spent four years at his home in Marseille with his family. His son, Zyman Jr., was eight in 1614, or maybe by this point he was nine, Zyman Danziker, the elder, was now something of a robust public figure in Marseille. His father-in-law, who was now deceased, had been the governor, and Danziker had dealings with the local merchants, the local count, the duke in the region, and the Duc de Ladies Guerre, not to mention two kings. He was fabulously rich and famous all across Europe. 
In Marseille, they called him their, quote, most notable freebooter. And had it been left at that, he might have died peacefully years and years later. But it wasn't left at that. He still had his violent and notorious past looming over him, and that allowed the corrupting influence of progress to get its claws in him. And once that has you, it never really lets go. You know, you can kill one corrupt sheriff, you can kill one roving gang of cattle rustlers, you can even kill the evil land baron, but there will always be another to take their place. The only way to escape that cycle is to ride off into the sunset, to go back into the wilderness never to be seen again. But if you choose not to do that, if you stay in town, if you set down roots and you start a new family, there will always be another baron or sheriff. Imagine this was unforgiven, and after Clint Eastwood killed the vile sheriff who everyone hated, he had decided to stay in town. What do you think would have happened? Well, more than likely, the federal marshal would have ridden into town to arrest him. Because you can't escape once they've got you. And this time it was, really, Zyman Danziker's own violent nature that came back to haunt him, much like Eastwood or Tommy Lee Jones or Logan or whichever anti-hero you choose to identify with, it was the ghosts of his past that proved to be his real enemy. And that ghost, in this instance, had a name. Jack Ward. Can't you just picture that gang sitting in some bullet-ridden farmhouse in the Mexican countryside, eating a meal of tamales and corn and grilled vegetables and beans and goat and goat cheese, and maybe the last of the wine? A meal that was prepared by a beautiful, matriarchal Mexican farm wife and her daughters, while her husband and all of her sons were out on the ranch getting gunned down by a gang of ruthless villains before they came for her. And there they are, in the ruins of a once-tidy farmhouse, with the dead bodies piled up outside, drinking and laughing and feasting. And then, a new gang member, who was brought in for this job, gets introduced around. We call ourselves the Corsarios. My name's Yankee Pete, and that there's Simon. We call him the Dancer, but nowheres he can hear, savvy. And that feller over yonder? That's Blackjack. Blackjack Ward. Reckon you heard of him. I told you, I've been watching a lot of westerns lately, all right? But Zyman Danziker had already been pulled out of retirement once to deal with old Yankee Frank. But now, a few years later, Jack Ward's name came to his ears. There were 22 French ships, all out of Marseille, currently being held at La Goleta, in the mouth of the harbor of Tunis. By all reports, their goods had been sold off and their crews were being prepared for sale as well. The merchants of Marseille, out 22 ships and all of their goods and crews, officially petitioned the local duke and Simon Danziker to go and deal with this problem. And, you know, if this were a western, it would be the blacksmith and the gunsmith and the cobbler and the shopkeeper and the saloon owner and the sign maker and the mortician, and a bunch of ranchers. But in Marseille, we're not talking about the salt of the earth here, we're talking about landed and moneyed interests responsible for international trade out of southern France. We're talking about corporate power brokers. They could have taken their problems to Les Diguerre, or even to the king, if it had come to that. 
but Danziger agreed to help them without any of those higher-up officials getting involved, mostly because this wasn't going to be a military operation. See, the French had only just recently had a stroke of good luck in dealing with the pirates that were sailing out of Sali. They had agreed to cease hostilities and to return all French captives. We mentioned this last time, and these Marseille merchants thought that Tunis might be amenable to such a deal as well, and it couldn't hurt that Jack Ward was said to be behind all of these attacks. Jack Ward was, after all, old friends with Simon Danziker. This wasn't going to be a military operation, it was going to be a diplomatic mission. Simon Danziker was going to sail down there to meet with the head of the Janissary Corps in Tunis, a man named Yusuf Day, and, more likely than not, he was going to deal with Jack Ward as well. Danziker was to see if a deal could be reached with Tunis. After all, they had a long history of friendship. At one point, Hayreddin Barbarossa himself had wintered in Toulon. It had been his home for several months. The people of southern France were friendly with the Ottoman Empire. In fact, the Franco-Ottoman alliance was still technically in place, the day of Tunis was putting that in danger. He was risking not only incurring the wrath of France, but of his own sultan. Plus, if that wasn't enough to sway him, friendship with Marseille could be beneficial for both parties. Favorable trade concessions could be agreed to, as well as certain military agreements. You know who France absolutely hated? Spain and Italy. They were the greatest enemies of France, except maybe England, but that was mostly in the past. Spain and Italy were for right now, and everyone knew that the Corsairs were also the eternal enemies of those two nations. This was the new world right here. This was society in progress showing itself. The Franco-Ottoman alliance was still a thing, but even more than that. Marseille was offering Tunis a chance to join in on a greater world coalition. The English, the Dutch, the French, and the Ottoman Empire, also the pirates operating out of Salih, they were all on some level friendly toward one another, operating against their mutual enemies of the Habsburgs, Spain, Italy, and the Holy Roman Empire. This was an opportunity for Tunis to become a part of that. Danziker got a messenger down to Tunis to see Yusuf Day and to ask for a formal meeting, and the Day seemed very receptive to this idea. So everything looked to be on the up and up, everything was looking great. So Simon Danziker set sail in February 1615 on a course for Tunis. When he arrived, he sent a party ashore to inform Yusuf Day that he had arrived, with only a single ship. This wasn't a military operation, this was old friends coming to discuss new partnerships. Those messengers sent ashore were treated well, and they returned with overtures of friendship from the day. The messengers informed Danziker that the day would visit him on board his vessel the next day. And when Yusuf Day arrived the next morning, he brought with him something Zyman Danziker did not expect. Danziker expected the few attendants he had with him, and the scribe, and it's worth noting here that Jack Ward was not there, but what he brought with him that Simon Danziker did not expect wasn't nefarious. He had ordered the French vessels, all twenty-two of them, brought from La Goleta Fortress into the harbor there. 
He had brought them out where Zyman Danziker could see all of them. He brought them out to prove that they had not been damaged or sold, that their goods were still on board, and to inform all of the French and Zyman Danziker that all of this trouble had just been a great misunderstanding. The day assured the French that he had no designs on their ships or their goods or themselves as slaves. He still held to that old Franco-Ottoman alliance, after all, so he expressed friendship with Simon Danziker and the French officials. He even expressed a little bit of chagrin at having so many French ships in his harbor. But you know how these pirates are, though, right? Hard to keep in line. But of course you know, you were one of them. No offense. The day produced not only the ships, but also a ship's captain, to ensure Danziker that no harm had been done to them. Their goods were still intact. They weren't being sold off or mistreated. They were given food and water and lodgings until all of this could be sorted out. So Simon Danziker was thrilled at this turn of events. So were the other French officials. They ordered that a feast be prepared there on the ship. They shared food and drink and good cheer with Yusuf Day and his men until it was time for the day to retire for the evening. But the day arranged before leaving for a next meeting, the following morning. This was, in part, so that the day wouldn't appear rude and could return the favor of a feast, but it was also so they could finalize and formalize their agreement and the return of all French goods. This was all in order and everything seemed fine. But imagine this scene in a western. Imagine the old gunslinger meeting with the local land baron. The baron, a thorn in the side of the populace, brought the gunslinger into his parlor where they shared whiskey and cake and cigars. It turns out that the baron wanted to discuss an amicable end to the conflict, one that would see his interests not hurt, but also those of the populace seen to as well. He offered maybe money to the people and access to water and grazing land for the ranchers everything that the people could need while ensuring that his interests were met as well. So he might ask the gunslinger to return tomorrow, when his lawyer would be present, so that they could sit down and sign papers and make everything official. And then the gunslinger rides off into the sunset, and we would watch that from the expansive porch of the ranch house of the Baron. Perhaps from behind his head, panning over, around to see his face from the side, and then a black hat enters the frame. It's Black Jack Ward, old and grizzled. You reckon he bought it? I believe he did. He should present no undue problems. Your men ready for it? For him? No need to worry, Mr. Ward. Everything is proceeding accordingly. This would give us, the audience, a sign that everything was not right, but Simon Danziker, or the Dancer, if you will, would have no notion that anything was untoward. Simon Danziker disembarked the next morning with only a dozen men. He was met by the same well-dressed officials that had feasted on his ship the day before. Danziker's men would have been mostly officials of one sort or another, not military men. But, of course, those well-dressed Tunisian officials did have an escort of flashy, brightly colored, bearded janissaries. They looked not unlike Yusuf Day. The two parties exchanged pleasantries there at the dock, 
and then began a procession toward the palace. The officials, the scribes and such, pulled Zymond Danziker aside to discuss a few minor questions of such insignificance that the day could not be bothered, and by that I'm talking about the money. These officials wanted to know just how much these French merchants were prepared to shell out to see their goods returned. How much was this treaty worth to them? The day was willing to be friendly, but these sort of negotiations implied that there would be a transfer of funds here. However, this was, of course, an uncouth sort of question, not the sort that someone like the day could broach himself. But these bean counters here would certainly want to hash out that sort of information before they got down to, you know, actually signing this thing. Now, Danziker was the intermediary between the Marseille merchants and the Day of Tunis. It would have been his job as their representative, and not to mention the richest man in Marseille with substantial interests himself, it would have been his job to judge these sort of discussions. So Zyman Danziker and these bean counters were all up front at the head of the column, with their heads together in discussion. Those janissaries were in the back with all of the French sailors who were taking in the sights of Tunis. As they neared the gates of the palace, that whole group stood back to admire the structure. See, this would have been their first visit to Tunis, many of them their first visit to Barbary. And... I mean, French castles were impressive fortifications, and French palaces, as they were now becoming, were works of art. But this, the palace at Tunis, was both. The defenses were woven in seamlessly with the arches and curves and mosaics for which North African architecture is known. This would have been a sight that the French sailors would have gaped at. The Janissaries would have been pointing out the more impressive details of the structure, but of course the Tunisian officials, and Zyman Danziker himself, had seen the like of this many times, nothing to stop and gape at, so they continued on deep in their negotiation. And when they reached the portcullis, another pair of palace representatives appeared to guide Zyman Danziker deeper into the palace. This was nothing to be alarmed at, until the gate dropped behind Zyman Danziker, separating him from his men. The new representatives led Danziker inside, while the Janissary warriors kept an eye on the Frenchmen still outside. They assured these French sailors that everything was fine and that they would be brought in shortly. So the French retinue waited for Danziker outside. They were confused by the situation and growing more and more tense by the moment. An hour passed, and then another. And then, atop the wall a janissary appeared. Trumpets blared at his appearance, drums beat, and the janissary tossed something over the wall, something small and round, right toward the French soldiers. It landed at their feet, covered in red hair. It was made a deeper red than normal, though, from all of the blood. The French all stared in shock, until it sunk in that this was indeed the head of their captain, the devil captain himself, Zyman Danziker. At this point, when they looked around, the Janissary escort, who had been nothing but amenable this entire time, had their weapons out. They had the Frenchmen surrounded. But they didn't advance and they didn't attack. They told the French sailors that there would be no deal reached today. They took these sailors back to their ship, 
carrying Zyman Danziker's head, and they told them to leave Tunis and Barbary immediately. Exactly what happened inside the palace is unclear. The accounts we have are from men who were not there. William Lithgow tells us that Danziker was dragged before Yusuf Day. John Ward was not present, he says, and then Danziker was forced to his knees. Danziker was subjected to an hour-long tirade against him personally. Yusuf Day lambasted him with accusations of the untold number of Muslim corsairs dead at his feet, and he wasn't wrong here. Danziker had betrayed the Pasha of Algiers, the man that he had sworn loyalty to. He had killed his own comrades in Algiers and then burned the fleet. That was terrible. But then he returned, more than a year later, to wage a guerrilla war against the Algerian corsairs. That was Algiers, of course, and this was Tunis, but apparently Yusuf Day did not consider that justification. After listening to an hour of his sins being listed in detail, a Janissary warrior stepped forward and took Zyman Danziker's head. Eventually, word would arrive in Marseille that the Tunisians would stop attacking French shipping, Word arrived that they would honor the Franco-Ottoman alliance, and it turned out that Algiers would even follow suit, but they would not return the ships or the captives taken. That was the payment of a debt owed by the French for harboring the devil captain. Much like Zyman Danziker had used his knowledge of the pirates in Algiers to lure them into one ambush after another, it appears that John Ward and Yusuf Day used their knowledge of Zyman Danziker to lure him into an ambush. But the ambush was one of a personal nature. They wanted to punish Zyman Danziker for his sins and not destroy the French alliance. The alliance there would mostly be upheld, even by the pirates, for a number of generations. And when it was eventually broken, it wasn't the pirates that broke it, it was the French, under command of Napoleon Bonaparte. Originally, my plan today had been to talk about pirate stories, about how the stories told about the Barbary pirates shaped the way that Europeans talked about piracy for generations to come. Instead, I talked about cowboy stories, so the discussion on pirate stories will have to wait, but I do want to talk for just a moment about the stories told about Zyman Danziker. In the eyes of those in Europe, the devil captain fared better than his contemporaries had. John Ward had of course committed the ultimate sin. He had abandoned his faith in favor of Islam. He betrayed his family and his people, not just physically, but spiritually as well. In the eyes of those in Europe, John Ward was evil. Francis Verney was a shade less vile. He returned to Christianity at the end of his life, after all, and repented his sins. He had died clean, which is why his effects are on display in his ancestral home. But Danziker was kind of a hero. Yeah, he killed a lot of people in his violent, wild youth, but he settled down. He raised a family. He never converted to Islam in the first place. He had tried to become a man of peace. 
He was, of course, pushed back into a violent life, but this time it was in service of God and King, and corporate shipping interests. In the commentary of contemporary Europeans, Zyman Danziker was kind of a classic Western hero. His wild, untamed way of life was dying out, but he would be able to put these tools, like heroes like Shane or John Wayne, he would be able to put those tools to use in defense of what was right and lawful and good. But I don't see him that way. I see Zyman Danziker as Clint Eastwood. I see him as an anti-hero. I see Zyman Danziker as someone running. Running from his past. His demons are always at his heels, trying to drag him down. But he could stay ahead of them until he runs headlong into those forces of the modern world. Then he's forced to turn around and face his demons, not to shudder them away. And when he does, like so many of our greatest anti-heroes, the demons win. And that wraps up our tale, our version of Barbary Piracy. Soon we're going to jump forward in time, several decades, to the 1680s and 1690s. We're going to be talking about the next era in our story of pirates and piracy. But not next time. Next time we're going to do something a little special. That will be our 100th episode. It will also be our end of the year episode. And it will also be the first episode of what might be considered the story of the golden age of piracy. So we're going to take a look back. We're going to step back from our story as a whole and talk about everything up until now. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up as a patron on Patreon, everybody who has given us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, everyone who has recommended the show to your friends and family. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au, that's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight